Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. Personally, I think it's very difficult to see how there'd be a general election. Um, it would require, you know, Tory... MPs, I guess, to vote to bring down their own government. I know there are some wreckers in the Tory party. Would they really do that? And culture. But as it goes along, you get, you do you do learn to sort of sympathise with these awful characters and realise that it must be actually terrible to be born into this huge wealth and privilege. Later on in this broadcast, we speak to Clive James about Philip Larkin. What was it about this very ordinary man that produced such extraordinary poetry? What was he really like as a person? Philip was really scared. Philip couldn't imagine a world without himself, which is usually our definition of a madman. We'll have more of that later on. But first, I'm here in the studio, as ever, with Samir Rahim, who's our culture editor and Alex Dean, our politics correspondent. And first to you, um, Samir, this week you've been watching um, HBO uh, and the series there, Succession, which is um, based on the court politics of the Trumps and the Murdochs, is that right? Pretty much, pretty much. Succession is the story of uh, Logan Roy, who is the patriarch of this um, American family. A bit like the Murdochs, um, uh, Jesse Armstrong, the British writer who writes the series, uh, had previously written, I think, a series on the Murdochs. Um, So I think that influenced him in some way. But it's also about... Uh, uh, or, or seems to draw on the Trumps as well. The idea of uh, this grand patriarch who's in charge of everything and completely domineering and his four children, all of whom are competing with each other for his affections and his attentions. And the other aspect of it is it, it's a bit of a King Lear story as well because he's um, giving up his power uh, at the beginning of the series and then falls ill. And it's about... Um, uh, his children's machinations competing with each other to try and get a bigger slice of the pie. I mean, before Trump, you used to say with these people, well, you know, they'll have the children, they'll be squabbling, but they won't be as good as the old man kind of thing. That's what people used to say about James Murdoch. But, I mean, <laughs> it's not clear that the Trumps Jr. are any, <laughs> any worse than the dad. How does it work in the, in the show? It's a bit strange. So the main son... Um, uh, who's the one who's meant to be taking over? Is a bit James Murdoch-like in that he, um, you know, he, he takes over a hip-hop label and tries to get down with the kids and is very much into new media. While his dad wants to just buy up the cable stations, he also has um, the actor playing him, Jeremy Strong, um, has a sort of physical resemblance to Don Junior. 
right. um, which is also quite um, uh, quite interesting all the way through because you just feel like there's this person trying to step into the shoes of someone much much bigger than him uh, than himself. What's so great about the show is that it starts off re- with real zingers. It's really funny. So Jesse Armstrong, and Lucy Peep Preble, show, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just did Peep Show and did uh, the thick of it as well. Lucy Preble, excellent playwright, um, did Enron, also about corporate malfeasance, as this show is as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think unlike a lot of British shows, you know, I don't know you try and watch something like um, Bodyguard or something, and yeah, the plot keeps you keeps you going, but the dialogue is really ropey but here they've just polished every line into a zinger so it's incredibly uh fast moving and funny but as it goes along you get you do you do learn to sort of sympathize with these awful characters and realize that it must be actually terrible to be born into this huge wealth and privilege (laughs) um uh, another american series doing something that you might have thought would be done by british um writers and producers is the crown which is coming back isn't it before too long um uh, I think that's is that Netflix rather than HBO. That's Netflix, yeah, that's right. They were filming it just down the road from here, actually, in Westminster Abbey a few days ago. And another form of succession, I guess. But, I mean, when you look at these things and you see them, they go over, what is it, you know, 13, 15 kind of episodes and they're an hour long and you're saying the dialogue's very good and much better than the equivalent on uh, British telly. Do, do you think that we just need to accept that the Americans are much better at television than the British now? Um, well, I think they, generally speaking, are, but also they can pluck the British talent and um, take the British stories, um, and uh, as they have done with a crowd, and just manage to spend an enormous amount on it. Both Succession, um, which has these incredibly elaborate uh, sets, one you know, one in the World Trade Center where the corporation is headquartered. Towards the end of the series, they all come over to England for a uh, a wedding in a in a massive castle. It's so luxurious, and part of the appeal is surely the getting a glimpse into the lives of the rich and famous. The thing about The Crown, which I, I really love, actually, and in fact, as we go along, we'll be seeing a lot more of the uh, the princes and uh, princesses and their various dramas. One thing about it, though, the last series did start to feel a little bit thin because uh, and it began, it, you know, we had the coronation, the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, father. We had the relationship with... Um, uh, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. But Quite a few that, flashbacks to the abdication crisis as well. abdication so. crisis. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I need to know my royal history better. But what actually did the royals do in the 1970s? I mean, what actually happened? Um, there doesn't seem to be that yeah. much until we get to the 80s and, and Princess Di. Um, so there was quite a lot resting on Princess Margaret's sort of unhappy love life, wasn't there? Really? Yeah, and that was the great. There's great stories in yeah. that. But now she's a character who then just sort of fades away slightly. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how they're going to cope with that. It does have the wonderful Olivia Coleman um, playing uh, the Queen. She seems to be in everything now. <laughs> well, the thing is, the funny thing is, she's playing um, another Queen very soon in The Favourite. She's playing Queen Anne. Uh, in a mm. film that's coming up in, uh, I think, 1st January that we recommend in this month's Prospect. Um, so um, her regal her regal heirs, very different kind of Queen, Queen Anne, I think, and it's going to be a bit of a, uh, a comic romp, <laughs> apparently. Um, Alex, let's, as an end-of-season um, treat, uh, let you off talking about the Brexit and the Tories for one week. Um, and let's just have a little think about Labour. It's often said they're in almost as much of a mess as the Tories, but a slightly lower temperature one. I mean, I'm, I definitely think they're in almost as much of a mess as the Tories and, and of equal temperature. It's, um, I mean, they're not in government and, and that always gives you some 
kind of you're under less scrutiny um but their position is just as confused i think if not more so and um yeah i've been watching labor closely speaking to a few figures we had that channel four debate uh which barry gardner spoke on and question time last week angela rayner shadow education sec um and, and one thing from kind of speaking to them and watching them uh, on TV and so on, that really stands out is just how much they don't like talking about it. I mean, they really, really hate talking about it. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. One of them is that, you know, these are clever people and they basically know that their position is incredibly weak and crumbles under even the lightest bit of interrogation. So they're, they're really not enjoying it whenever uh, kind of the microscope turns to them. Um, the other reason that I think they, they don't like talking about it is... Um, basically it's just not their lingua franca all this kind of technical stuff about customs unions and so on they really struggle to sound comfortable when they discuss it and then they don't have the kind of boris johnson david davis uh tory right kind of um yeah exactly yeah tub thumping kind of um you know buccaneering britain kind of speeches that they can give um it just puts them and sets them up in a really awkward position and and they're kind of squirming as they speak um and i think i would be if i was a labor mp because the position is pretty incoherent i was talking to someone who you'd think of as a very mainstream pro-european labor figure this week in the commons and i was very surprised by this line about you know we've got to be careful with the second referendum because it will open up divisions a lot of them really do feel that don't they they're not just saying that i think because it's convenient for them to let the Tories tear each other apart. They're really worried um, that they would start the most almighty kind of division amongst um, their voters, particularly yeah. amongst Labour voters, if they, if they go ahead with it. Yeah, and I think there's this, um, you know, the whole Hampstead to Hull kind of uh, Labour's electoral coalition and, and how do you keep both of them on side? And it's an incredibly difficult balancing act. Um, I, I have quite a lot of sympathy, actually, personally, with the idea that a second referendum, uh, you know, would... would It'd be a bit of a slap in the face for all those people who uh, felt ignored by the establishment, never voted, finally traipsed out to cast this kind of momentous once in a generation vote, hoping that they were going to finally be listened to and make themselves heard. And then it actually, I don't think it would be an establishment coup, but I think it would have the optics of an establishment coup. And and, and that's quite bad. So, but the problem is there's no good options left. (laughs) Isn't the issue one um, to do with immigration, really? Because you've got the, um, you know, the Islington uh, uh, Labourites, like uh, my MP Emily Thornbury, who um, is culturally sort of very pro-immigration. Um, and then you've got sort of Jeremy Corbyn next door, who may be sort of culturally for immigration as well. And multiculturalism is, is his thing. But there's also another strain in him, which is, well, undercutting workers. And actually, do we want people... Um, you know, he's meant to be the you know representing working class left wing Labour voters, and in a way, it's the opposite of the Tories, isn't it? Because um, they've got the sort of they're culturally in favour of, of immigration, but sort of economically wary of it. Yeah, I mean, Corbyn's actually spoken personally before about uh, pressure that immigration uh, low school workers puts on kind of uh, domestic labour. Um, I think in the same way that the Tories have been kind of, it cuts across their uh, kind of governing philosophy in extremely awkward ways, uh, Brexit, because they want to be pro-business, but Brexit seems anti-business. And so you have Boris Johnson saying, 
fuck business. I don't know if I can swear on the podcast. That's the first uh, for me. But um, we've got uh, a bit more swearing coming up, by the way. When uh, okay, uh, when, okay. when Clive when Clive comes on, but, some appetizer uh, for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so anyway, it, it seems really difficult to see how all the different uh, competing strands of the Tory governing philosophy can can hang together. It's the same with Labour, um, although <laughs> it, it does damage and it's awkward in a very different way but still it, it it seems very awkward indeed for the for the labor party so what are they going to do it's not at all clear that, that there's a suggestion that they might fall in behind something like may's deal if she concedes a permanent customs union that's actually labor policy so then she could uh, they could kind of hold that up as saying that they want a huge concession from the government um i mean my instinct would be that they would um always be able to contrive some reason not to support May's deal. Yeah, it's a Tory Brexit, isn't it? They'll always, yeah. But I do wonder, like, how long they can keep evading this. We know we've got this proxy war now going on about, should you call a vote of confidence? Um, Because people who want the, to flush Corbyn out and force him to embrace a second referendum are saying yes. But I think most people aren't really, you know, that's a battle of, it's obviously a battle of tactics and I don't think anyone's going to, um, really uh, lose their jobs over that. But where it might get more difficult, Alex, is when it comes to the point where, like, you know, there are real votes to be cast on what's the way forward. And they're now talking, the Conservatives, Liam Fox, recently talking about um, the Commons having a multi-option majority and Labour's going to have to decide, well, which options are you in favour of? Which ones are you going to whip? And this will affect not just Labour Party tactics, but the country. So do you think by... February, this um, useful ambiguity will have gone. Uh, I think it's very possible. And I think Labour has <laughs> a huge division in the Labour Party over whether it's in favour of a second referendum. And at the moment, they've dodged that question by talking about how their first preference is for a general election. Um, now, it's not at all clear how, under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, they can actually bring a general election about. Um, but when People who don't like the idea of a second referendum are pressed on it. They always go, yeah, but we want a general election first. We want a general election first. And when people who do like the idea of a second referendum are pressed on it, they kind of <laughs> they, they say, well, we're going for a general election first. But if that doesn't work, which it might not, then we'll turn to the second referendum. And so it's that kind of two halves of that, <laughs> of that argument. And whichever side you're on in the Labour Party, you pick the first or the second. Um, Personally, I think it's very difficult to see how there'd be a general election. Um, it would require, you know, Tory MPs, I guess, to vote to bring down their own government. I know there are some wreckers in the Tory party. Would they really do that? What about the DUP? Because they're the other element in all this, aren't they? And just as uh, when I think Corbyn was elected, what, 2015? Yeah. Something like that. So um, along with his sort of more sort of Eurosceptic take on things, there's also his and also particularly John McDonald's baggage let's call it, to do with uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA and um, essentially supporting United Ireland. At this point, some sort of back deal between the DUP and Labour could be quite useful. But is that historical antagonism going to play in play into the, the calculations? I think it definitely will play into the calculations. And I, I can't see any formal deal going on between those two parties at all. But I mean, you need to remember that it wouldn't just be a case in a confidence vote in the Commons of the DUP necessarily having to vote against the government. They could abstain. 
abstention is a hugely important thing in all of this and all these parliamentary numbers that we talk about and, and everyone kind of games the scenario you always need to look not just at who vote for and against but who might abstain um, I'm not saying the DUP will abstain but I just think it's an option worth considering Thank you, uh, Alex, and also Samir. And now we go over to our main interview, which, as we've said, is with Clive James, who's talking about Philip Larkin, the greatest lyric poet since his fellow citizen of Hull, Andrew Marvel. Clive, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Um, when Philip Larkin died in 1985, he left... Uh, carefully curated body of poetry, criticism and, and novels. But since then we've had shelffuls of letters and revealing biographies and naughty schoolgirl stories. So how's our view of him changed? Just after he died, his reputation got into terrible trouble because uh, it had come out that he'd been interested in things like pornography and, and so on and... Uh, it was an opportunity for those who really didn't know nothing about poetry to say that he wasn't a great poet at all. Since since then, it's been a matter of fighting back to a reasonable view in which he is a great poet, a great poet indeed, but with many human flaws, which he knew all about. And the drama that comes out of, relentlessly out of the publications of the letters and the ancillary writings is that how much he knew all about his own failings and in fact needed to put them in print to express them. It's still a great mystery, I think, why he published so much stuff that would have helped to condemn him. But uh, paradoxically, the amount he's published of this uh, subsidiary material has saved his reputation in the long run as it becomes obvious that uh, a flawed human being created the great poems. Well, there's no mystery there. As for, our, as for all we know, all the great poets have been flawed human beings. I personally would be stunned if they were not. I don't think life is that good to us. And, uh, and Larkin turns out to have all kinds of cans of worms lined up in his mind. Well, I could go on with this answer for a long time because mainly I'm still answering it. I thought there was a crucial stage a few years back now when it would look like he'd be left off the syllabus because he was politically incorrect. And we've overcome that folly. It's now obvious that he's a great poet and he stays there. And the people who are betting that they can shift him are going to lose. But I've got to stop this answer before it runs on forever and consumes your entire program. Yes, it was a, a problem, but I think the problem is over. He's established as a great poet and a flawed human being. Well, surprise, surprise. Um, you talked about Larkin's failings, and sometimes in his poetry, he seemed to almost exaggerate those failings. Talk about Annus Mirabilis, you know, sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me. But as you point out in your piece, he was rather... Uh, uh, women really, really rather liked him, didn't they? The truth is that Larkin was lying almost consistently about his own status as a sexual human being and you couldn't trust him on any level uh, unless he was writing a poem then you could and even then the poems might be telling a lie but the lie is so obvious that you're supposed to spot it sexual intercourse began in 1963 
well, it's quite unlikely that that was true, and it should have been seen to be unlikely that it was true. Um, the short answer is that there was the real truth for Larkin was poetic truth, and the stuff he said in public or to his friends was all a performance, and sometimes a very disturbing performance too, but a performance is all it was. Have I given the, the right short answer there? The short answer is uh, you could trust Larkin as a poet and for nothing else except libraries. If, if I'd been borrowing a book, I would have trusted him there. Um, so you talked about his politically incorrect views and his letters, and some of those have been traced back to his father, who was you know, talked about as being a Nazi sympathiser. But in these letters, a different view of, of Sidney Larkin comes through, doesn't it? Well, and, and, of, his, and of his mother very different but just to take Sidney Larkin what we know most vividly about Sidney Larkin the father was they had a little little uh, statue probably a ceramic statue of Hitler on his on his mantelpiece that's not the thing to concentrate on there was there wasn't a bad case for having a model Hitler around the house but what matters is he was a strict grammarian and uh, to it's real news when you find out that Larkin was brought up in a house where grammar was regarded as something that had to be correct. And that's what influenced him for life. And Larkin was never a Nazi, but he certainly believed in dangling participles or that they shouldn't dangle. I haven't put that very neatly, but the short answer is that his father was much more complicated than Larkin enjoyed making out, and his mother was extremely more complicated than Larkin enjoyed making her. A dull art is what she was not. Uh, she was a terrific reader on her own account. And of course, she was just the person to be in touch with when she'd just been to the supermarket because she was full of information about how ordinary people lived. And that's what's startling about Larkin's poetry. It's, it's alive on every level. And the level of ordinary life, it's tremendously vivid. In fact, there's scarcely a poet like him since since Dunn's time, Marvel's time. Dunn and Marvel are the two names that always crop up because, for me, he is them. He's in, continuous in that line of the witty poet. And he manages to transform that order, ordinariness, doesn't he, into, into these wonderful poems. But he needed a well, well to draw on. He was like that in real life, actually. When you're talking to Philip Larkin, you notice straight away they had a very dull, ordinary voice, which would say very not dull, very vivid things. He was, you couldn't take your ears off him. He himself, of course, was deaf, but uh, people lean forward when they listen to him, and especially women, uh, in swarms, as it turns out, all, almost all of them. Tell us about one of the times that you did meet Larkin and... and, and... The, the time I most memorably met Larkin. I was on tour with my songwriting partner, Pete Atkin. We were all over the country. And we did one gig in uh, in the, the junior common room at Hull University. Uh, it was in the evening and it was quite a successful gig. Did the songs, did a bit of talking. So, and there was this mysterious figure up near the back of the room and I gradually realised it was Larkin. And it was already hit me before the concert was over 
This man is deaf. What's he doing back there? Well, the answer was, of course, he couldn't hear a thing. He'd just come, come to check up and see what I was doing. And uh, I was so impressed with that. And uh, he was actually quite interested in my work. And you'll find that almost any writer responds to that kind of attention. Uh, in fact, it sometimes pays off to pretend that you're interested in somebody's writing. And, uh, but I didn't think Lagan was pretending. I think it was very flatteringly. He was interested in what career course I was taking and he was very interested in the fact that I was a performer because he himself was debarred from that. Not so much by his nature as by the fact he really couldn't hear very well. And um, and he was flatteringly interested in what I was doing. So I remember that night all right. The night, the night he came to a concert that he couldn't hear. You bet I did. And uh, I met him several times, not very often. He knew that I honoured him. I wrote about him all the time. And quite early, when I was first in London, somebody, my landlord, gave me a copy of The Less Deceived, which is the first famous collection of Larkin's work. And I wrote to him saying that I thought it was wonderful. And uh, he agreed. Poets usually do if you write them. <laughs> say, look, I think your book's great. You usually get an answer. And... Uh, he wrote back, and uh, and that went on for the rest of our lives. The few letters, widely spaced, the few letters that I received from Larkin uh, are in Australia. They're in New South Wales Library. And I, and I wasn't interested in contributing them to the collections of Larkin's letters. There are too many letters now. There are too many things that confuse the issue. And I don't really believe in collecting people's letters. But that's another answer. That's another program. And I'm, I'm doing the thing that you dread most. I know. I'm waving the microphone, and therefore it's wandering <laughs> away from my mouth. God, I've forgotten everything. Hold the microphone steady. There we are. Um, you wrote in your piece that, um, fascinated by Larkin's faults, we've barely made a start on appreciating his virtues. I still, still think we are. I think we're still realising how great he is. I've had arguments in Cambridge with friends of ours who sincerely believe that Larkin could be safely dropped out of the curriculum and uh, and barred from a hearing because of his beliefs and so on. Well, that foolishness will pass. And uh, sorry, I've forgotten the question already, Samir. You must <laughs> That's all right. Me. Appreciating his virtues. And it's interesting, yeah. he seems a poet that still seems to speak to generation after generation. The recent hundred-year anniversary of Armistice Day, I saw many people tweeting his poem 1914. and uh, People will never stop reading his poems. They're unforgettable and unputdownable. What's interesting is that his, his behaviour on the ordinary level of professional life and friendships and so on was impeccable, by the way. That should go on and on being emphasised. It's the Larkin of the letters in which he He's a racist, he's this, he's that. He's certainly prejudiced. Uh, you never, see, you would never see that in real life. It was That was to entertain his friends. It makes him ask questions about the friends, all right. Yes. <laughs> I, I knew some of them. <laughs> and Kingsley Amos, for example, was a handful. I think Kingsley was a genius too. Uh, but there's no doubt what he and Philip were both up to in the letters. They're trying to shock each other. And they're unshockable, both of them. Uh, it's a game. 
It's a very sinister game. I wish they hadn't played it, but uh, that was the game. Yes, and you talk in the piece as well about his appreciation for jazz music. Oh. And, you know, he wrote some wonderful criticism about it. He's more than appreciative. He's a jazz critic on the level of what the Americans used to call mouldy fig. He's a mouldy fig critic in that he he favours the traditional jazz and uh, the more traditional the better. But on the level of mouldy fig criticism... uh, if you accept that he's not going to break any Mubari, he's not going to be the man to introduce you to Joel Coltrane, John Coltrane or or um, anyone after 1940. Um, but he was a resolutely uh, resolute traditionalist. But he was a, it was a fabulous criticism because it's resonant in so many areas. All Larkin's ideals of what art should be appreciable, intelligible, immediate. They're all in the book All What Jazz. It's a great book, in fact, I think. Uh, I told him so, and then and there again I found, strangely enough, he didn't disagree with me. <laughs> if you tell any writer he's written a great book, you won't get an argument. <laughs> and why should you? You say that Larkin's verbal dynamism still tears you to bits. Is he hurt? still speaks to you. Oh, yes. I keep on picking him up and not putting him down again. Uh, I have this conversation with Martin Amos not long ago. Martin is new Larkin well, of course, because he he was in the house. He would show up in Kingsley's parlour. And uh, Martin is a great advocate of Larkin. But Martin actually can recite the whole thing, you know. He recite you almost every poem. I deliberately didn't learn them and I actually learned poetry habitually because I like the fresh shock each time if I can get it. Um, yeah, he'll keep on doing that too. But then Larkin's prose does that to me. I was reading Trouble at Willow Gables again the other day <laughs> and I was thrilled by that. <laughs> and I still want to know where the girls got their tanned legs from. Come on, tanned legs in Britain? And you... You, you, you'll appreciate the joke, but no, it's not likely. They're not as salacious those stories as they uh, as uh, they promise. As you hope. As you <laughs> hope. <laughs> yeah, I was in search of of exactly that and didn't find it, uh, but I was still shocked. Uh, it was because it really was a woman's world, and I think he was quite interested in that. And I think when you read this collection, the latest collection of letters, which are mainly talking to his mother you realise that he saw saw the world through his mother's eyes, and uh, which I do find fascinating. Uh, I find it personally fascinating because so do I. And I grew up without, without a father entirely. And um, I think that's one of his, of his characteristics that we'll hear more about as time goes by. Larkins is a woman's world. And... Uh, but then you need a critic like Barbara Everett to tell you that. Barbara Everett was a great critic, and she was the one who spotted that Kingsley Amos was a feminist, which is quite true. I mean, the, the hero of the early Amos novels is that girl Jenny Bunn in Take a Girl Like yeah. You. And, uh, and for Larkin, it's, it's Alice jumping with floating skirts. And you, that's, that's his dream of freedom and expression. And, so the, I think the women have helped to keep Larkin's reputation from the fire, as it were. 
Uh, although it was a woman, a woman, however, who I heard the greatest condemnation of Larkin from. Uh, I won't go into detail. I've already done so in the article I wrote <laughs> for you. Uh, and that's enough. I think the people who tried to pretend that because of his flaws, his undoubtable, un undoubted drawbacks, uh, he was a great poet after all. Uh, I think the people who tried to assert that, uh, that a, a great poet couldn't be that flawed, uh, are already in retreat, and so they should be. Um, because greatness in poetry isn't just for children. Uh, it's for adults, and adults are dangerous, as we all know. So, Clive, how's your own uh, poetry been influenced by Larkin? I rush to answer this because it's a question that's going to loom. It's already loomed. And I was deeply affected by him as a writer. He was one of the people who made me, confirm me in my course as a writer. But I was never influenced in by, by him, even for a second, because it's fatally dangerous. Sounding like Larkin is something you'll do. If, if you relax even for a moment, it's, uh, it has to be avoided. And, uh, but uh, on, apart from the technical level, in which I really am not influenced by him at all in my view, um, on the thematic level, I have to cope with the fact that I'm not a pessimist. He was, he's a pessimist, I'm an optimist. And boy, he really was a pessimist. Uh, so what I'm transmitting in my poetry is something else. Uh, he was a very, very afraid, not just of death. We all are. We don't. None of us wants to die. I can think of. I can give you a list of a thousand ways I don't want to die. But I'm not scared about the idea of being dead. I'll just be gone. Philip was really scared. Philip couldn't imagine a world without himself, which is usually our definition of a madman. And. Uh, <clears throat> I feel different from that. Um, I'm not giving. I'm not giving you a short, snappy answer to this because it's not a short, snappy question to me. But I think you're influenced by every poet you admire. Uh, it's unavoidable. But the, unless you've got something to say for yourself, you won't be getting anywhere anyway. It's not just a matter of juggling influences and dialing that one down and dialing this one up. It's um, it's much more a matter of professional integrity and attitude. That's what's catching. You know, ready to wait for 20 or 30 years to get a poem right. Ready to give a poem away if one line was too strong for the rest of the poem. He did that. That, that poem that showed up late in his, in his publishing career, long after he was dead, uh, it's got the beautiful line, dead leaves, desert in thousands. Well, he eventually got a poem to go around that line, but he never got a poem that was as strong as that line, and he never published it. And if you could, getting ready to, not to publish something because it's not up to standard, that seems to me to be the level to hit if you can. Again, my answer's growing very long here, <laughs> because I'm still involved in it. 
Here I am, I'm a hundred years old myself, older than Larkin as it turns out, and uh, which I never expected to happen. And I'm still trying to answer these questions. What do you publish? When? How long do you keep it running? See, the answer to the question of why there's so little Larkin poetry towards the end, and only one great poem, Obard, is, get ready for the answer, here's the answer. It takes that long to write Obard. <laughs> and if you don't think that's true, you try it. <laughs> it's, it. You just have to wait. You don't have to wait. Waiting is part of the process. I've sounded a bit preachy about this, but I really do think so. Yeah, and I wonder whether, I mean, this is the edition I have got in my hands here, which is the 88 uh, Anthony Thwaite edition. And yes. it included not only the, the collected, uh, the poetry collections, but also in between all the... Uh, poems that weren't published and, and yes. drafts, and I wonder whether, in some ways, that was the start of us trying to sort of bulk out Larkin. Um, I I gave it a beating, in I reviewed it for the New Yorker, I think, and I, Anthony would be the first to tell you, I jumped up and down on it because I thought, you give away a lot, when you start ignoring, the, the groupings and the ordering of the poems that Larkin gave the poems, by by himself. In other words, you, when you start thinking, second-guessing him, thinking you've got a better way of organising it, eventually you end up with everything. And the trouble with ending up with everything is you tend to end up with nothing. Uh, it would be like, it's like the fatal error of reading Yeats from the start, for example. You don't read Yeats from the start, you read him from the end and go in the other direction. And I think that's probably the same is true of Larkin. But... Uh, I'd love to read something out. What, yeah, what would you like to read? I'd love to recite the poem that he, did, he didn't really mean. And you're supposed to know that he doesn't mean it. And here's a danger, you know, because when you're a really convincing poet, if you're saying something you don't really mean, you should put a, another line in at the start saying, I don't really mean this, to make sure the dunces can't use it to beat you with. This be the verse, it was called. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can. And don't have any kids yourself. Thank Isn't you. it wonderful? And you didn't mean any of it. <laughs> you, 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 my usual line about life is you can trust him in his poetry and in nothing else. And then you've got to add a, a coda to that. And in, there's quite a few poems where you can't trust him either. <laughs> He's an artist to Christ, not a saint. Thanks so much, Clive. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, I was getting better towards the end. That was Clive James there talking to my colleague Samir Rahim and to read Clive's article on Larkin read our special midwinter double issue which is in the shops now or visit 
www.prospectmagazine.co.uk where you'll find all kinds of stuff on politics, global affairs, as well as science, culture and the arts. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio. The producer of this programme was Jay Elwes. Thank you so much for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast which really helps other listeners to find us. Be sure to join us again in a week or two's time for the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.